Hello, everyone, and welcome to First Film, the podcast where we discuss famous directors and their feature-length directorial debuts. My name is Baden Chu. And I'm Kyle. And today we are going to be talking about the legend himself, George something Miller. Stick around to find out how Miller got involved with a biker gang and how Mel Gibson's battered face landed him a role. Because we are going to be talking about his first film, Mad Max. Mad Max. Make sure to leave a like, follow, subscribe <laughs> to never miss an episode of First Film. That's right. And then, you know, if you don't like the episode, you can just go back and change it. Or you can email us at firstfilmpoddy, P-O-D-D-Y, at gmail.com. With that being said, let's jump into the director segment. Okay, so George Miller. Do you know much about George Miller, Carl? I knew he was Australian. Well, did you know that he was born in Chinchilla, Queensland, Australia that is... in 1945? The year the war ended. <laughs> the year the war ended? Some would say the greatest year on earth. Okay, but that place sounds fake. I don't think that's real. Chinchilla is a food, is it not? That is an animal. <laughs> okay. That's an animal. Well, god damn it. So not much is known about Mr. Miller's early life, but I do know he actually studied medicine in university. Oh, He was yeah. a medical student. And in his last year of study, him and his twin brother, John, make a short film called St. Vincent Revue Film in 1971. It was a one-minute film, okay. and the contest was basically a small local contest. They had to make the whole film entirely in camera in one hour. And so he went with his twin brother, who kind of convinced him to get involved and came up with this idea. And they won with a prize to go to a film workshop. Oh. Um, and originally, he wasn't supposed to go to the film workshop. His brother was. Wow. But he ended up going as well. And he met a man named Byron Kennedy, who would go on to be a producer on the early Mad Max films. Yeah. They, they were very close collaborators. They initially made another award-winning short film called Violence in the Cinema Part 1. The only thing I could find from this was a very short clip on YouTube where a man in this weird, like, ghoulish mask talks directly to the camera about violence in film while a man hangs behind him. What? It was like 12 seconds. It was from a featurette on one of his other films. It was all I could find. I have no idea what to make of it, but it was an award-winning short film. Oh. It was from that that they sort of bounced into other stuff. And Byron Kennedy, yeah, very close collaborator. They made a number of short films together and George completed his medical residency in 1972 and was making films while working at a hospital. Interesting but did they ever make Violence on the Street part two? There was it? no part two I don't know. I don't know what the part one even meant. <laughs> a lot of these early short films are apparently quite experimental and that's a very experimental film time, yeah. right? Like if you want your short film to sound experimental you give it like a weird part or chapter name <laughs> or something and they also apparently made a feature length documentary called The Devil in Evening Dress Oh. Um, which I could not find like any trace of anywhere. It was difficult on its own just to find out that it was a documentary. Really? You know, when we were first coming up with this episode, we were going to try and find that to do that because yeah. it's listed in front of his IMDb as his first feature film. But I don't know if there's any way to watch it online at all. I lost media right yeah, here. Yeah, I don't know. Like maybe there's a version somewhere in some weird collection or something, but could not find it. So Byron Kennedy and George Miller formed Kennedy Miller Productions, which you'll see at the beginning 
beginning of Mad Max, and also Mad Max 2, a couple of the other films. And um, Kennedy Miller Productions is now known as Kennedy Miller Mitchell. Ah. A man named Doug Mitchell joined only a couple of years before Byron Kennedy actually died in a helicopter crash. Really? He was piloting a helicopter. And that really affected Miller, because Kennedy was like his other half. And so it was very difficult, apparently, to sort of fill that void after Kennedy died in that helicopter crash. And the production house is one of the biggest movie makers in Australia and probably the one with the most critical acclaim. Their first big hit was, of course, Mad Max 1979, starring Mel Gibson and uh, a number of other fairly unknown but like well-trained actors. Yeah. The film, which we'll get into later, made a colossal profit off of its very modest budget. Yeah. And it was actually the most profitable independent film of all time until it was dethroned by The Blair Witch Project, which is still like one of the highest on the list. Without going into it too much, the film was at least partially inspired by the gruesome injuries he witnessed while working in the hospital. Mad Max 2, only a few years later, propelled him to further fame with awards and accolades as well as a very tidy profit, somewhere in the realm of $30 which again, for a semi-independent production house, that's huge, right? Uh, One of the things I think that movie solidified was his incredible eye for production design. In this really great director chair interview, he talks about the fact that he wanted a lot of the look to come from sort of like found items, like the kind of stuff you'd scavenge, and that even in the impoverished looking areas, they would have a lot of artistry in all of the clothing and the looks because, you know, people still find ways to be creative no matter what tools are at their disposal. Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting take on this sort of post-apocalyptic production design. I think it helps build out the world a lot. He also has a lot of care for stunt people. They play such a huge role in the Mad Max film and he actually studied stunt deaths in Hollywood. Really? And he noticed that a lot of them happened when a stunt was being done over and over and over again and so everyone gets a little bit careless and a little bit tired doing it over and, and that's when something happens so he's very careful with that which i think is like you know a really nice touch and it was it was nice to hear him acknowledge that in 1983 he also directed a segment of the anthology film twilight zone the movie what yeah so i had to look more into this because i'd never really heard of this movie and like what it was so the twilight zone movie is a anthology film split into four sections each by a different director and wow. sort of headed up by steven spielberg what right? and the familiar name that came up was that one of these segments was directed by Joe Dante, the director of the first Piranha film. No way. I'm not kidding. So remember, <laughs> back in episode one, we talked about how Spielberg liked the first Piranha film and that he went on to work on Gremlins with Joe Dante. This was another project they worked on together. Wow. Weird connection. So they were tight-knit after I, that. I wow. never expected to like have Piranha come up in this research. That, that was like a really interesting experience for Miller to work on. You know, working anywhere near Spielberg is just, like, insane. Yeah, especially on a franchise that is so beloved. Yeah, and remember, this was after really only, like, two films, Mad Max and Mad Max 2. Yeah. So it's it's really incredible. And then he went on to direct Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Witches of Eastwick, and Lorenzo's Oil. It's based on a true story, and it's very different from his other films. He loves his oil stories, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does, right? Those last two actually each received Academy Award nominations. And I think it was for The Witches of Eastwick. He received a nomination for Best Screenplay. Wow, okay. Yeah. Things really seemed to change, however, in 1995, when Kennedy Miller Mitchell released Babe. Oh. Produced and written by Miller. 
right? So he didn't direct Babe, but he produced and wrote it. This friggin' pig movie was a colossal success. Like, bigger than Mad Max, I believe, in terms of, like, box office. The, yeah. the budget was higher, obviously. Yeah. But it got seven Academy Award nominations. What? Babe. I had no idea this movie was so big. Wow. Right? I remember watching it as a kid and thinking that it was like a made-for-TV movie, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. I thought it was just one of those fun animal movies. Seven Academy Award nominations, including for Best Picture and Best Director. No way. I'm not kidding. Do you know what it was, like, up against? So Best Picture that year went to Braveheart, Mel Gibson. No way. No way. Okay, that's crazy. So it went to Braveheart for Best Picture, and Best Director went to Mel Gibson for Braveheart. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> they were up against each other. That's crazy. That was a Mad Max sweep that year at the Oscars from the Mad Max team. I have to feel like Miller must have been proud of him, though. For sure, yeah. Like, that's crazy. Okay, I'm glad we looked that one up. Wow. So, Miller's next three films, these are three that he directed, Babe, Pig in the City, Happy Feet, and Happy Feet 2. Babe in the City didn't do as well, you know, commercially, yeah. but the other two did, and they received a bunch of Academy Award nominations, and I believe Happy Feet won Best Animated Feature. Um, and Miller has said that despite the surface differences, the films all actually have core hero mythologies in them, which is what he says kind of ties together Mad Max through Happy Feet and, and Babe. <laughs> is he going to make like an Endgame-style crossover where he has Happy Feet fighting Mad Max chainsaw to the death? Oh, hang on a second. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, Max typically has a dog as like his sidekick, but what if you had a, a talking penguin? pig? <laughs> <laughs> um, the dancing in Happy Feet is also described as like another type of action by Miller, which is why he kind of enjoys directing it and, and why his style applies to it. So I'm going to bring this up now because I found this quote. When you look up George Miller Happy Feet, one yeah. of the autofill things is George Miller Happy Feet, shoot me. Okay. And, you, and I found this quote from in 2011 where he was asked if he would do a Happy Feet 3. And the first line of it is, if you put a gun to my head and said, you have to come up with a story for Happy Feet 2, I'd say shoot me. Oh, man. Right? And so I read that. And when you're looking at his IMDb, when I initially looked at it, I kind of assumed that here is a director who loves his gritty action movies and for some reason reason was kind of like forced to do Happy Feet kind of against his will or something and, and didn't really enjoy it and then he came back for Fury Road. Yeah. That's my assumption just it's a long quote and if you keep reading it says I'd say shoot me I would have no idea I really would have no idea. The stories creep up on you you just have to allow the stories to come and then they get in like little earworms in your head and they won't go away. If that happens and we've got the energy, we'll do a third one. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. That's the only way you can do it. It has to be authentic. I really wanted to make this film better than the first one. Otherwise, at my age, what's the point? You really want to make it better. If something comes up that's really exciting and I can convey that enthusiasm to other people, then there would be a third one. Reading that whole response, I really like what he was saying there. Yeah. Because initially, of course, I just thought he was saying that he hated working on it. Yeah, them. he's like, hates the franchise. He doesn't like any of the process. Yeah. the original message, it just seems like, I'm trying to be authentic here. I don't want to create a plot. Just for the heck of it. He really did not hate making them. When he read the the story that Babe was based on, he's the one who pushed for them to get the rights to the screenplay and wow. to make it. It was his choice. He yeah. chose to and he wanted to. And he has a real respect for animated movies that I think some directors kind of lack. 
I really like Miller because he he has a, a respect for them that I, I really like to hear. Yeah, at the end of the day, he just wants to make a good film regardless of what medium is it. And they got huge critical acclaim at the Oscars, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I just have a real respect for him for, for being committed to these films and not having like a resentment for it. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. So he had two other projects in the works during the 2000s. A Justice League film. What? And the long-delayed Mad Max Fury Road. So I'd heard about this Justice League film that was supposed to get made, but I hadn't realized it was connected to George Miller. Wow. Uh, the movie was fully cast. It had Army Hammer as Batman, Whoa. DJ Katrona as Superman, and Megan Gale as Wonder Woman. Oh. The script is fully available online, and apparently wow. it was very close to production. Wow. But it was heavily impacted by the Writers Guild of America strike and complications with securing tax breaks from the Australian government, because these, these big movie studios, they love their tax breaks. Warner Bros. loves their tax breaks. Batgirl, yeah. Justice League, wow. In fact, the incredible success of The Dark Knight is apparently said to have impacted the release of the film because they weren't sure about having multiple Batman on the big screen at the wow. same time, which obviously now in, in the present superhero <laughs> world is not that big of a concern. We could have seven Batmans on the screen. So to conclude, there was a Justice League movie. It didn't happen. It was going to be very expensive and you know, it's apparently very good. Fury Road, on the other hand, did happen. Oh yeah. Right? And when it you did. when you look up George Miller, that's most of what comes up because yeah. it's an amazing movie. Yeah. While it didn't make as much profit as the studios were hoping, the movie did amazing critically. Ten Academy Award nominations, which is almost as many as Everything Everywhere All at Once this year. Wow. That has eleven, right? So it lost Best Picture to Spotlight. It lost Best Director to Alejandro Inaritu. I I hope I'm pronouncing that right for The Revenant. It lost Best Cinematography to The Revenant, and it lost best visual effects to Ex Machina. Wow. Those are the four it lost. So it lost some of the big ones, but it won like editing, sound, all kinds of stuff. It, it did very, very, very well. Yeah. 3,000 Years of Longing is his most recent release. Apparently it's pretty good, but no one saw it. When did it come out? Very late last year. Wow. Yeah, I didn't December. hear anything about that. Yeah, it was a huge flop. Furiosa and Mad Max The Wasteland are currently in production. Those are the next projects he's working on. I did not know he was making another Mad Max film. Yeah, Furiosa, I feel like I've been hearing about for a decade now. Ever since Fury Road came out in like 2015, Furiosa has been talked about, but apparently Mad Max The Wasteland has been in the works just as long. Now, do we know if that's going to be a continuation of Fury Road? Or... Yes, those two are supposed to be linked into this sort of new Mad Max continuity. Okay. The story is that he came up with the whole thing on a really long plane ride. He was sitting on, on the plane and he said it came almost fully formed to his head. Wow. Fury Road, that is. By the time they landed, he was talking to his producers and his collaborators and he was like, I think I know what we're doing for the next Mad Max movie. Wow. Which is rad, right? That's such a cool thought um, to think of. Yeah, it, it's so cool. You know, like I said, there's not a lot of interviews with him. There's not as much as any of the other directors we've done. Pretty sheltered guy. Yeah, personal life is definitely very separate and and, and very closed off, which totally respect. But I really like the way he talks about movies. He has like such a love and respect for so many different styles and arts. 
You know, one of the things he said was um, Mad Max was a big hit in Japan. Yeah. He sort of didn't know why. And he was talking to them about sort of why it was interesting. And they said it was because it was like a samurai archetype, yeah. like the Kurosawa films. And he apparently said, who's Kurosawa? <laughs> I don't know. He, he had a medical background. He didn't learn film in, in, a, traditional in, a, in a traditional way. way, right? Yeah. But here he is. And his films are incredible. He's a fascinating director and so different from the ones we've looked at before. He's really a self made director. It's great how all of the directors so far have had such different journeys into filmmaking and they've all worked really hard in completely different ways. But yeah, that is all I have about George Miller. Just a really fascinating guy and I don't know, I love watching his interviews. He's so charming and he talks about his films and the craftsmanship behind them in a very articulated manner. It's it's great. Well, Bane, I think it's time we flip things upside down That's like they do in Australia. Right. Oh, shit! And talk about the movie! Let's talk Talk about Mad Max. Mad Max, the Night Rider. The Night Rider. So, Kyle, the first thing I want to talk about with this film, okay? You're aware of the uh, the Sigma male. Oh, God. Correct? Oh, <laughs> God. What are you getting up okay? to? This isn't so present in this film, but it kind of is in the later ones. Now, we have Sigma males, right? We've got Patrick Bateman. Oh, God. We've got Jake Gyllenhaal from Nightcrawler. <laughs> We've got probably Mike Urbantrout. <laughs> From Breaking Bad. He could have now, used Walter White, you chose to make <laughs> Trout. Now, with all of that in mind, Carl, I feel that in many ways, Max fits many of these traits. Now, why do you think it is that Mel Gibson's Mad Max has not become a, a Sigma male character? Because he knows that I hate Sigma, Sigma male characters, so... I actually think that the reason is because Max is just... He's not very mad in this movie, and he's also just not very good at anything. Well, maybe before we uh, get into that, we should give a summary of what happened. Right, yeah, we should probably do that. So, Ben, what happened in this film? Basically, Max, he's like a he's like a cop in, in post-apocalyptic Australia. It's a regular Australia. So regular Australia. And he's got a sidekick, and they end up getting mixed up with this, uh, this gang led by this dude, Toe Cutter. Not a nail tech. He looks like that Chewbacca character in Spaceballs. Humanoid Chewbacca. Yeah, humanoid Chewbacca. Yeah, yeah, he looks a lot like that guy. Uh, they end up getting on the wrong side of this biker gang and uh, Max's sidekick and his wife and his kids. Almost forgot about them. They get all killed by this biker gang, causing him to go mildly pissed off. A little bit perturbed. Yeah, like, you know, I feel like he's avenging them out of obligation more than love, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> it's because he knows that the film has to progress. Yeah, he's like, he could just go to that bar that uh, his sidekick was at, the one where they're singing the song Licorice Ride. They're at the bar, there's the woman, they're all the bear feet like walking around <laughs> and this woman's singing about the licorice ride honestly not a terrible song probably the best part of the film well <laughs> so did you enjoy Mad Max Maiden it's weird man cause like I thought I was going to I thought this was gonna maybe top the list for me but yeah yeah I actually found it kind of boring listen there were some really cool stunt segments but other than that it seemed like a lot of filler a lot of kind of weird acting choices when the film shines I think it really does shine but when it For doesn't, sure. it's hard to get through. Yeah, it's definitely been skewed by the fact that some of the sequels are just, like, so good. Especially now that we have 
have also like a lot of other car action based movies. But I, I really just think it could be fixed by trimming it down a little bit. And I think the problem for me is, and I'm not just talking about Max here, but I just didn't like any of the characters really. Goose was my favorite character in my I opinion. like Goose a lot. I think he was great. I actually think he was maybe the best performance. Yeah, just because he's like, he amps it up in a way that I feel is more appropriate for this like post-apocalyptic world. Whereas Mel Gibson feels like he just kind of walked out of like a convenience store. Max himself isn't very good at anything and he isn't very bad. It's, it's just kind of weird because I like the opening with him. I like how he's kind of revealed through like these shots where we don't see his face completely and then he kind of goes all out on the Knight Rider, right? It's so funny. He comes out of this NASCAR <laughs> type car. He takes off his sunglasses, looks at the explosion and then it just cuts to the scene of a saxophone playing <laughs> and it's like, what just happened? Yeah, and, and the look on his face, it isn't that badass. Yeah. When we don't see his face before, it's kind of cool. You know, he's got the black leather and stuff. But then, like, it does this zoom in on Mel Gibson's face, and I just can't take him seriously in that moment as, like, gritty cop on the on the beach, right? And maybe he's not supposed to be that. Yeah, yeah. But then later in the film where he sort of goes mad, right? The rampage is just mild. And I know it was limited by its budget, and they probably maybe wanted to do more. Yes. But I feel like just the acting and performance could have amplified the madness almost. I agree, because, like, I would think the car stuff is harder to do than like shooting people like talking to people yeah and i wish there were more one-on-one interactions with max and members of the gang as he was taking them out that's what i think why the film suffers a bit is it's like we know how to shoot cars we have these really cool stunt stuff but yeah. we don't know how to write dialogue and these scenes with actors on actors exactly it's yeah. almost like the actor stuff is more filler for the car for the car the stunt stuff. stuff yeah like he's he's gone mad by the end and yeah. we see his car a lot but we don't see him we don't even see him driving the car the windows are tinted and stuff we see it all from the outside it's very odd and i have to wonder is this because of mel gibson's performance maybe or is it because of the writing because there's some weird fucking lines and choices dude yeah one yeah. of them is what he's talking about his dad and he's talking about he got his dad's <laughs> costume inherited down from him amazing that it fit <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly i guess they were just the same body type yeah. right but he says he had special shoes oh yeah <laughs> Brown. Brown. And there's just other weird stuff. Like he puts this weird latex mask on his face and he says like to his wife, oh, why are you grumpy? I agree, right? Like when he goes mad, the first thing he does is he goes and he finds that mechanic guy and he like threatens him into telling him like where the gang is. But it's just not menacing. Yeah, it's just more like, I have a strong argument to make and you're gonna listen to uh, it. I guess I'll I'll squish you with this bloody car. Uh, I'll, I'll have this car sitting on you and then I'll <laughs> I'll gas it up and then I'll take it away. Yeah. He's not very threatening. And that's kind of what will lead to another supposedly mad character who's mad before Max, Toe Cutter. Mm-hmm. I thought his performance was really bad. It's interesting because reading about the film and like reading about what other people are saying about it, Toe Cutter seems to be one of people favorite parts about the film. He's definitely memorable. I'll give him that. Very he memorable. He has a lot of memorable lines, but I feel like his performance is just, nah, just, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and that does work, but there's not a lot of quiet moments. He's like one tone, one note the entire film, in my opinion. I agree, right? Because he initially starts out and he seems like one of those mob bosses who's 
calm and controlling and he speaks softly sort of kingpin-esque yeah where yeah, he's, yeah. he's he's mob-mannered but with kingpin you know we see him smash someone's head in with a door or something but we don't really see toe cutter do anything extreme so he just kind of comes across as the democratically elected leader of a very <laughs> chill motorcycle gang yeah yeah and some of the lines are great like when he's trying to convince johnny to burn goose like right and i thought that entire performance where goose is in the car he's trying to convince johnny that was probably the best part of the film well i think goose sold it really well there and it actually led to the part that was by far my favorite the part that had the most weight to me in the whole film was when max goes and visits goose in the hospital i feel like that's the high point of the film almost the climax and like it never kind of reaches back up to that height yeah because what happens after that is you know that obviously pisses max off but he just kind of quits the force and goes on vacation in like this little uh <laughs> this little shack this little shack um, but so yeah goose is burned he gets in his hospital and there's this great shot designs you can see him under this tarp there's this blue light yeah and you don't really see anything but you can like imagine it in your mind how he looks this charred corpse from this car wreck and the fact that he's still living you can hear the sounds of the medical the breathing and the bag is kind of like inflating a little bit it was scary it was actually it was scary his side. hand looked really good as it like fell out and and also just the the contrast of knowing that under there he's like a monster but also in the blue light he looks a little bit like a baby floating in embryonic fluid exactly yeah it was genuinely like scary and i felt mel gibson's performance there more than any other point in the film yeah when he comes out and he says that's not goose and then it lulls an interesting thing to bring it back to the toe cutter i saw him talking about his performance and one of the choices he made is that he would switch up accents like during the course (laughs) of the filming okay and listen with that and the screaming i feel like that's where all his energy was directed to (laughs) he was putting all of his effort into doing the different accents exactly like like, every scene so he had nothing left to give for for actual emotion and like he was like this line has to be mid-atlantic this next one irish we're gonna go to british i guess it's one of those things that maybe he just needed to try out once (laughs) and then and then he got it out of his system he realized it's not gonna work and he just never did it again (laughs) yeah i don't know and his gang in general i thought was again very unique why do they follow the toe cutter why do they because it feels like a lot of them could just do better by themselves he seems to disagree with most of the things they do in the film yeah they'll be like can we do this and he'll be like no (laughs) nor nor we can't do that instead of yes and in improving he's like no and no and no and do this for me yeah exactly maybe there could have been something interesting there where the gang turns on him or like disobeys him in a, in a different my way my only justification is that Knight Rider used to be their leader and because he died <laughs> they had to go work for Toka because they were oh, like we got pensions we got kids we gotta right, do yeah. something man Toka is the only one who had the keys to like the safe that has all of their yeah. paychecks and passports he was the banker yeah exactly he was the accountant and now they all just kind of follow him and he's he's working it out as he goes along but to bring up another good thing about the movie is the vehicles let's talk about some of our favorite vehicles okay baby. Kyle what, what was your favorite was it was it the fur lined car that they stab a bunch was it the motorcycle with, with the, the sidecar with the flames and like the little dome the dome sidecar which a woman is just like sitting in well Baden, I think yours was the police cars which were 
All the worst shades of their respective primary colors. It's not even a lime green. It's like a reflective green with like an awful red and blue. It looks like how a NASCAR has all branding, you know, like of Shell. Yeah, of gas and the, the logos don't match up color scheme wise. Yeah, but if they just removed all the text and just kept all it's the logos. Just, yeah. I'm pretty sure there are some countries where that's the color that they put on like ambulances and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like it yeah. didn't seem like a cop car to me. I did like the V8. It's just such a cool car design. The shot of it coming out of the garage for the first time is just so cool to see. That is something they did well, where again, like, it's almost a well, character in and of itself. There's this really good scene, I think it's at the very end, when Toe Cutter dies, mm. um, and he goes headfirst into a truck on a bike. Yeah. And they use a mannequin, but you can see him tumbling underneath the flatbed yeah. truck. But right before he hits it, his eyes bulge, bulge out, out of his head, which is very effective. Because it's like we're catching him in the moment of death. Yeah. There are great ideas in this and the car stuff really shines. The way they shoot the cars low, all the stuff where Goose is on his motorcycle looks really awesome as he's like sideways going around the corners and stuff. And the stunt work is just fantastic, especially on bikes and stuff. It's absolutely great. But yeah, so the car stuff really shines, but it's really missing a character element in it. It just seems everyone's very bored, (laughs) which is shocking due to the universe's content the stunt work and stuff. I wanted to see him go mad mad at the end, right? And I feel like that wouldn't have been restricted by budget because the car stuff is probably more expensive than the people stuff. They could have just have him like bust into a diner where one of the bikers in and just like go to town on him. We don't even need to see all of it. Yeah. I just want to see him like be more physical. Exactly. This also happens in the the second one where Max is just terrible at hand to hand. (laughs) Like he's just awful. He's not a combatant at all. Like in this one where he, at the end where he's chasing um the two of them and he gets ambushed and they like drive over his arm and stuff yeah once he's out of the car he's terrible this is the funny thing too and i I get this is part of the appeal of the universe but none of the police force are trained in hand-to-hand combat they're just trained in car to car not even a little car to car max defeats knight rider by just driving at him with no fear (laughs) yeah that's it it's cool it's not a strategy though (laughs) i like the idea but the police force should at least know how to throw a punch well especially like mad max right yeah i want the car to be his like vessel for vengeance yeah in the same way that the batmobile was in like the batman exactly and it it felt like that at some moments it did it did but part of the reason why that works in that medium is you see the penguin's fear you see how determined bruce wayne slash batman is in the car and we don't get that the toe cutter he sees the new car and he's not intimidated by it he's just like oh what's this (laughs) and they establish it in the world as this untouched thing no one really has something Yeah, like it's legendary. They should have more reaction. I find it weird that they don't even seem to know who he is exactly. Yeah. It just feels very impersonal. Good stuff, bad stuff. Good stuff, bad stuff, right? Like, great vehicle stuff, great stunt work, some good character moments. Yeah. Um, we can do, like, a speed round if you have any, like, miscellaneous notes. Yeah. Um, Max is a bad father. His baby in one of the early scenes is just, like, holding a gun in the background. Very bad. I thought that might come into play later, actually. (laughs) His baby just accidentally kills someone. Bro, the baby defends the mom from the biker (laughs) gang as they're coming. He just pulls out the the pistol. And his child's name is Sprago? Is that an affection nickname, or is that 
actually his name. That's actually his name. Because why is Max's name so regular when everyone else has such weird names? Everyone else is like Goose, Toe Cutter, Like, I think the boss's name, the chief policeman's name is really weird too. Yeah, he has like a really weird scarf around his oh neck. Oh my gosh. And he's like always naked. It's, it's, an, odd, it's an odd chap. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly this world is on the verge of collapse. If, if, that, that, <laughs> if that's your police chief, then you have other things to be concerned of than the Toe Cutter. I'm sorry. Are the police funded by taxes in this universe? <laughs> is, is money even a thing? I don't know. Because the biker gang clearly doesn't care about it. Um, I'm surprised that we've barely mentioned the saxophone part. I'm surprised that hasn't come up. Because um, it was just... Strange. What the fuck was it? Strange. I, uh, completely inexplicable. And we're not going to tell you what it is. It's better if you just kind of you just watch to... it yourself. Yeah. Um, I also find it funny when they recover the Knight Rider's body in the coffin. Mm. Uh, the toe cutter goes to, like the train station. First of all, the train guy is just wearing these like shorts. It's weird in this movie because obviously it's very hot in Australia sometimes. Yeah. But every time a bare leg is shown, I just get like the ick. It's also weird because they like they pick up his body and they hand him the tiniest coffin. It's like <laughs> it's, a. It's, it's, I was just gonna say that it's the world's smallest coffin. It's like it's not even the size of an infant. It's the size of like a fetus. That's how small it is. Later in the film, Tokar is sitting in the back of a pickup truck and he's just cradling it. It's so funny. It's so funny. That's probably his best performance right there. I mean, yeah, he's just like clutching this this coffin. Um, I thought that was funny. One of the actual other moments I liked was at the very end, I think he traps Johnny the boy in a car wreck that's pretty mm. much similar to how Goose dies. Yep, good parallel there. And he does this great thing, and I think this is the only time we actually see him go kind of crazy and mad. Yeah. Is he's like, here's a saw. You can either saw through the handcuffs which will take ten minutes, or your leg. Which will take like five or whatever. And what crazy is the original Saw movie has this same thing right and they did it first Max is the original Jigsaw he's the original Jigsaw he's mad he just went crazy and he started building traps for people and the craziest thing too is we see Max start to walk away and we can imagine him cutting, cutting through, his, through leg, his leg and then the car just explodes because he was lying about the time it would yeah, take yeah it's, it's way less than however long he said it would be it like explodes almost as soon as he walks away and that I thought was a peak moment. A Sigma moment. Okay, <laughs> shut up. You shut up about calling him a Sigma male. There should have been more moments like that in the film. I agree. Not necessarily of him torturing or doing these really fucked up rituals and whatnot, but just having this brutality at the end. Well, yeah, and I think it also worked because, again, it was him, not the car, right? Yes, yes. Like, he was out of the car. He did it himself. I still think his performance was, like, a little iffy because he kind of whispers, which maybe that was a choice. Like, we don't want to do yelling mad. We want to do a quiet kind of man. I think it could still work. It's just there's no expression on his face. It's the Mel Gibson stare. It's the Mel Gibson stare. And another problem with that is he doesn't really have an expression on his face earlier in the film yeah. either. So there's no contrast. We don't really see a happy-go-lucky, cheerful police officer doing very much emoting yeah. before yeah. he goes mad. So he's just kind of flat. Another thing is some parts of the universe they failed to explain. Like there are those weird lawyers who are in these very like funky, big 
big shoulder padded colorful classic suits. stuff i'm glad those come back in the apocalypse world <laughs> oh no i'm happy clearly fabric isn't scarce because we can put a thousand pounds of it on people's shoulders exactly exactly this kind of leads into this next this mini segment is the themes and takeaways because the world is not quite post-apocalyptic yet yeah it's like on the verge it's in between and i think max represents the border and him going mad is where it becomes the apocalyptic world there's sort of this running theme where some of the cops are talking about like we need heroes and max is maybe the last hope for that and he falls from grace and i think that's, that's a really dope. cool idea that's, great. Like, sick, that's actually right? awesome fantastic stuff i, I i'd love to see that Better i portray. didn't really get it from this though because it didn't feel like he fell from grace that far yeah he yeah. fell maybe a few feet he fell off a small stoop he slipped on a snowbank <laughs> as he was leaving his house because he's an idiot <laughs> and he's not good at anything that's another thing there's a lot that i feel like can be taken out of this film max on vacation goes on a little bit too long he's wearing like the white wife beater <laughs> and he's like chilling in a station wagon a lot of this film feels like vacation because yeah. like the vacation segment had to be what 30 plus minutes or like 25 at least oh god we're gonna be horribly wrong it's like two minutes yeah segment. right it felt long though it felt really long and there's a bit where like the gang's chasing her through the woods yeah felt like the princess leia chase scene in kenobi i liked may oh the the aunt like there's this grandmotherly character who uh total badass by the way yeah like, super sick she runs the farm where they're kind of retreating and she did a great job i thought i thought she was great i think she really sold it she had like a leg brace type of thing which i think added a lot to the world and i want to talk about that in the behind the scenes because there's actually a weird explanation okay i don't know she felt more honestly more competent than max <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah because when his wife and his child are running away she's like grabbing the shotgun she forces them all into this room like locks them in a barn so they can get have time to get away yeah and she like tries to hold them off with a shotgun while the car breaks down and yeah wife and stuff while max is like off. on off on a wild goose chase yeah he's like in the woods like chasing someone and the thing is like the biker gang has her son and then may comes in helps her get the son back and then locks them in the barn but if max had gone there to do that then max would have fucked it up because I'm, <laughs> I'm just he's just not good at this he would have walked up there and been like take me take, take me instead. instead and then they'd be like all right and then they crush his baby's head and then they kill him <laughs> and his wife so to uh, kind of wrap things up yeah i want to talk about the legacy and kind of comparison to the other entries okay in the universe. yeah I think this has a good way of establishing kind of what the world is without saying too much. Mm -hmm. Just from the set, just how this, let's face it, badly structured police force is. Yeah, yeah. And it seems almost like an origin story for the post-apocalyptic world and obviously Max himself. Yeah, because again, it's it's on the edge. I feel in this film, urban apocalypse fighting with nature. Yeah. In yeah. a lot of the, the scenery and stuff like that. There's a lot of like natural stuff in this. It's weird because most apocalypse things are in a wasteland. Exactly. But there's quite a lot of green in this film. Yeah. Again, it feels like it's on the edge of collapse. Honestly, I would be interested seeing a modern take of a similar type of film, like almost an origin story in kind of a similar universe. Right, like, like an origin of the Tom Hardy one following a similar storyline to this. Because I think it is, it loosely does fit where his character is in Fury Road. Not even just that, just in like this world almost. A modern take of like on the edge of collapse Okay. How does this world become this? Yeah, yeah. Because I will say there just aren't that many movies like this. I think part of the reason so many people went to this film mm. is because there was nothing like it at the time. Nothing like it. And if you take it in that perspective, it is fantastic. Like, it's very exciting. 
exciting, especially what he did with two and three. But we're spoiled. We're we spoiled. Have... We've got we've got too many good movies. We're, we've got our iPhones and our, and our Disney Pluses. We've got Fury Road. We've got Fury Road, which is, oh God, night and day. So, Baden, how many liters of gasoline would you rate this film? Out of... Out of nothing. <laughs> out of nothing. Out of an empty tank of gasoline? Yeah. I would give this four out of six empty cans of gasoline. I'll give it three toenails out of five. Oh, God. Actually, out of six. Out of six? Yeah, that that's pretty appropriate. I, it's very middling. It might be my least favorite of the ones we've watched. Ooh, worse than Piranha. Again, I think I'm crazy, but I, I kind of <laughs> like Piranha. Okay. I was more entertained by Piranha than this, at, at least at certain points, but I enjoyed Piranha more, I think. All right, with that out of the way... I'm going to tell you the story of the crazy behind-the-scenes on this film, baby. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the behind-the-scenes are going to be more interesting than the movie. <laughs> oh, just wait. So strap in your seatbelts, ladies I'm and gentlemen. Stra- strap in your, your seatbelts and your V8 interceptors, your fur-lined vehicles. And let's get mad. Wait on set! So to begin, Bait, I want to talk about the early stages of this film. So in total, the budget was $350,000. Not a lot. With inflation, that's $1.5 million. So at the end of this segment, I want you to guess how much this film made calculating with inflation. It's going to be a oh, fun time. Oh, with inflation? With inflation. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But to start, Baden, we have to go back in time. To when Miller met Byron Kennedy at a summer film school. Yes, the uh, the film fest. And like you said, they produced this short film together, got some accolades, some awards. And as you also stated, he was a medical doctor in the ER. Yeah. Saw many motorcycle and automobile accidents and would be so inspired that he had the idea for the film. Mm -hmm. Miller and Kennedy wanted to make this film together, but the issue was they knew nothing about writing a script, how the process was, how it would work. Right. So Miller actually read an essay that showed that most major American screenwriters started out as journalists. Really? Yeah. So this is how they got a man named James McCausland. Oh, I, he, he's one of the writers, right? He wrote this film. He is the screenwriter. He's a co-writer, yeah. So originally they met him at a dinner party and they connected with him. They were both film buffs. They yeah. They shot the shit. And McCausland <laughs> joined the project and he actually has a cameo in this film. Really? Do you remember the diner, the gasoline diner? Is that the place where um Goose is eating at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. That's the diner where Goose does the roll over the car yeah. to get on the motorcycle, yeah. right? And so when Goose drives off, mm-hmm. you see this fellow. He has a beard. He's wearing an apron. I noticed him on my second watch. That's McCausland. Ah. Snap, okay. They paid him four grand for a year worth of writing, which is not a lot. That wouldn't have been full time. It would have been like on the side. I assume right? so. But here's the thing. McCausland was a journalist and he knew nothing about writing a script. So they wanted to find a way to write a script and they found a guy who doesn't know how to write a script. Yeah. And so the only real training he had is when Miller took him to the cinema and Miller would talk to him about the narratives of Westerns, of action movies, of like race movies and just kind of explain them to him. 
Are you fucking kidding me? I'm being dead ass. Well, this guy overcharged. Yeah. <laughs> he should have been paid nothing. I just imagine McCausland's face looking at George Miller as he says, yeah, I want to make this crazy car action film. And he's taking him to the cinema. He's showing them all these films. McCausland's like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. He put pen to page eventually. And McCausland actually took a lead on the dialogue. And he himself stated he wanted to avoid Western contemporary slang. Oh. And instead use more Australian terms and yeah. just that kind of language. Yeah, which enhances the film greatly. Yeah. And Miller himself actually focused on the narrative context, the visual beats, and how things, of course, translated to the screen. Mm, good split. And McCausland drew his inspiration from the 1973 oil crisis and how it affected Australian drivers. And I actually have a quote about him from this. There were further signs of the desperate measures individuals would take to ensure mobility. A couple of oil strikes that hit many pumps revealed the ferocity with which Australians would defend their right to fill a tank. Long queues formed at the stations with patrol, and anyone who tried to sneak ahead in a queue met raw violence. Really? George and I wrote the script based on the thesis that people would do almost anything to keep vehicles moving, and the assumption that nations would not consider the huge cost of providing infrastructure for alternative energy until it was too late. Of course Australians were beating each other up at petrol pumps. <laughs> yeah. This is the least surprising part of this podcast. It was a bloody Honestly, there. even if there was no gasoline shortage, if you cut in line at the pumps, <laughs> you're getting a fist, man. You're getting a fist to the face. You're getting one of Goose's famous haymakers. Yes. Yes, you're going to be like Johnny the Boy. So they actually had an original draft of the script that was much different from how it was. The biggest change is there are actually hints of the original script in this film. Okay. The biggest key element was a character known as the Dark One. If you remember, Max, when he realizes his wife's missing and mm -hmm. stuff, he tells May, call the Dark One. Really? Yeah. Who the hell's the Dark One? So in the original script, the Dark One was Max's original driving partner. Oh, shit. And if you look closely, his initials are present on Max's car on the right fender. TDO? I think so, yeah. Oh, my God. That's really interesting. The remnants of this, like, different script being in there. So he was a completely cut character, and I assume they changed him to Goose. I like it, though, just as a little bit of world building, because, you know, he would have connections to weird people. So obviously, the script changed. <laughs> a lot. And became the story of revenge, road cops versus bikers, and yep. this odd post apocalyptic world. Miller didn't want to set it in a post-apocalyptic world. Not originally, you said. And he did so because they didn't have the money for extras and non-abandoned buildings. Oh, so they could only use derelict bullshit. So that's why they added that title card at the beginning of the film. Yeah. To explain there was this global conflict. That's why there's not a lot of people. That's why all the buildings look like shit. Right. So the script was fully written. Story was developed, but they had to get the money. So so they would take this to Graham Burke of Roadshow Productions, and Graham was very interested in the film, but the producers didn't actually share the same enthusiasm, believing it couldn't raise money from the government as, quote, <laughs> Australian producers were making art films and corporations and commissions seemed to endorse them wholeheartedly. <laughs> Which is crazy, because when have you ever heard of people being like, yeah, art films will make more money or yeah, something like that? Never, yeah, never, that's for sure. Did they want it? I guess they wanted to be the next, you know, French New Wave. 
<laughs> Australian new wave. Australian new wave. But Miller and Kennedy were desperate, so they made a 40-page presentation and shipped it around to different people. So they raised the money, but they still didn't have enough funds. It was less than half a million, right? At it was, was 350000 Yeah. What Miller and Kennedy did to raise the remaining funds, for three months, they did emergency medical calls in one of their cars. What? With Miller acting as the doctor and Kennedy driving him around. Sorry, they did like an impromptu ambulance thing? They did an impromptu ambulance. What? Is that even legal? They were the Ghostbusters. What does that even... Of the what? medical world. Are you for real? I'm being dead ass. And for three months, they gained the money. I'm sorry. Okay. And if that's not the most Mad Max thing I've Literally, ever heard. Yo, I'm just imagining like the two of them in a fucking car. They're like sitting by their radio. Yeah. And the radio comes on. It's like, we need uh, assistance on uh, Avenue 4 and 5th. <laughs> and Miller hops in the back, starts prepping needles and injections. And Kennedy, Kennedy slams <laughs> on the gas. The car does a drift around the corner. That would be a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. So the money was raised. And so now it was time to get the script cast. So Miller and Max actually wanted an American. American actor to be in this film so it could have higher publicity mm. and a higher chance of people seeing it as they'd recognize an American name. Yeah. Miller even traveled to LA himself, but actually decided that I believe in LA that he didn't want to do this as he realized the entire budget would be sucked up paying for this guy. This guy who, you know, there's no guarantee he's going to make the film work. So the casting director actually instead would invite a class of the National Institute of Dramatic Art graduates to audition. And among those students was Mel Gibson and Steve Bisley. Steve Bisley is? Goose. Goose, okay. So Mel Gibson didn't actually want to attend the auditions. He didn't want to audition at all for Mm. Mad Max. How the story goes is Steve Bisley was going to go to auditions. Right. But Mel needed to give him a ride. And as the story goes, Maiden, Gibson had been beaten to a pulp (laughs) the previous week in a drunken bar (laughs) duel. And his face was littered with bruises and swollen so much that the casting agents asked him to come back because they said, we're looking for freaks in this film. I think Mel Gibson got beaten up at one of the fucking petrol pumps. <laughs> I think on the way to the audition, right, because he was giving him a drive, they had to go stop for some bloody petrol yeah. during this oil crisis. Gibson's like, we got to make it to your interview. We're cutting the line. We're cutting the line. Immediately they get beaten up. That has to be what happened. And that's why Mel Gibson was such a perfect role. <laughs> yeah, he knew exactly what it was like being out there in the in the urban jungle. <laughs> but they took Polaroids of his face bait, and that's how bad it was. Really? And they asked him to return when his face healed. So Mel returned to the auditions about like two weeks after, and after his face had healed, and the producers didn't recognize him, Baden. Because he looked so different? Because he looked so different until he pointed to his Polaroid. Supposedly, he got the part after winning over the casting director with a joke and confirming he could <laughs> drive. <laughs> That's the kind of skill set you needed to get into this film. Damn it, it's so easy to get into movies back then. Uh, you just have to show up back then and you're like a multi-million dollar <laughs> superstar. You show up and you know how to drive. So Steve Bisley got the role of Jim Goose. Yeah. And it's the, nice that they were cast together, actually. Yeah, and they were roommates, so they yeah. just made like the perfect pair. Of course. They could do their lines together. They could practice.
justice them. Exactly. So my favorite fact is Mel Gibson got paid 10 grand for this film, but the Interceptor cost 35,000. So it cost more money for the Interceptor than Mel Gibson. That's a tenth of the butt. Wait, what the fuck? Yeah, on the Interceptor. Wow. I mean, worth it. 100% worth it. That car, <laughs> that car is so sick. But for the bikers in the film, Miller used a different method to get his extras. Because of the limited budget, the bikers in the movie were part of a real biker gang known as the Vigilantes. No. They brought their own bikes to set. They were forced to travel from their Sydney homes to the filming locations in Melbourne <laughs> in full costume, often with their prop weapons displayed. This was so bad that the production company was so nervous about the bikers being pulled over by police. Yeah, and or shot. That they gave each member a personalized letter explaining their involvement in the film and for the police's cooperation. Wow. This was such a prevalent thing on the set that in the film, you know when Goose gives that biker the get out of free jail card? That's the reference? That was an on-set joke about the letters. No way. (laughs) I was wondering what the fuck that scene was because Jim is flirting with this girl. Yeah. And then he like turns to the guy and he's like, here's a bloody get out of jail free card. That would sort of, it's based on. I keep wanting to interject with a joke and then you say the absurd thing that I'm thinking of. It just gets crazier and crazier. God damn it. This is such an insane production. So for the regular extras, you know, the non-gang affiliated yeah. ones, Baden, <laughs> they were paid their weight in beer. God damn it, Australia. Now everyone's cast, we have to get to filming. Filming was scheduled for 10 weeks, but the entire shoot ended up being shot in 12 weeks around Melbourne. Okay, a couple of weeks extra. Miller describes the entire process as guerrilla filmmaking, mm-hmm. and the reason is crazy. The crew would close roads without getting any permits, <laughs> would avoid using walkie-talkies to avoid being picked up as their frequency collided with police frequencies, and some shots had to be filmed so fast, and you can actually see in some instances actors rushing as they're filming on interpasses in similar populated roads because they didn't want to get caught by the cops, Faden. This film was mostly it's like an illegal shot. film. <laughs> it was shot illegally. So most of the stunt work, like all the cars and stuff, like blowing up, yeah. illegal. They didn't even legally close off the roads where they're blowing shit up? Nope. They illegally closed off roads themselves. And it had to be done quickly, all the stunts, so in one or two shots, so that they could leave before the police arrived. And afterwards, Miller and Kennedy swept the roads to themselves. To clear off, like, the junk and the metal bits. Yeah, even with all these precautions, they did not avoid police attention. They're working with biker gangs. They're doing illegal, like, blowing up stunts. <laughs> They're closing off roads. roads. Of course they got police attention. If they didn't, that would be a shame on the Australian police force. The Victoria police found out about the production, and instead of shutting everything down, they helped the crew by closing down roads <laughs> and escorting vehicles. What? As if you think it couldn't take a turn. The Australian police was just like, yeah, all yeah, right. right. All right, yeah, we'll help you out then. Why didn't you just tell us from the beginning, mate? You could have got <laughs> yeah. way more footage out of this. So let's talk about the stunts in the cars for a bit, Maiden. Because they're really good for a low-budget movie. This is why. Actual decommissioned police cars were used in the film and repainted. Yellow, blue, uh, and red. The motorcycles were all late-model demonstration units and were donated by the company Kawasaki. And most of the bikers actually just kept the they bikes. Kept the bikes after it, they after just didn't the return them? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. As far as I'm aware, the film probably made enough money to pay for a couple of Kawasaki bikes. Yeah. Um, The stunt coordinator was a man by the name of Grant Page, who spent his years training with the commandos in the army, and this would translate incredibly well to film. Wow. And let me tell you, this show 
those? Because some of the stunts are fucking wild. They're scarily impressive. Yeah. People should have died on this set. <laughs> Do you remember the opening scene? Yeah, yeah. Where the, the Knight Rider crashes through that van? Mm -hmm. That was George Miller's van. No. Was that was not. his vehicle. So wait, wait, did his van got crashed through? It did get crashed through, but it's all the shots before it gets crashed through. Right. For the actual shot, it got hit. Yeah. They found a car in the scrapyard oh. and repainted it to look like Miller's. Oh, that way it didn't have to move at that point. Exactly. Smart, man. I'm gaining a lot of respect for this film. I know. <laughs> to make matters crazier, you know when the Knight Rider crashes and explodes? Yeah. That had to be reshot because they strapped a military booster rocket to the back oh, of the car. yes, you see that when it like eclipses something and it kind of sparking thing comes out of the back and yeah. it slides. And to make matters scarier, it went out of control, missed the target fuel tanker, and veered off into the field where it chased the film crew for a quarter of a mile. What? What do you mean? <laughs> so the car had this fucking jet engine to the back of it and it's chasing the fucking crew and they're running for a quarter of a mile and the car's just kind of spinning around and like that cannot what yeah what they get a rocket <laughs> where the fuck did they get a rocket i have a theory it's grant page the stunt coordinator yeah because oh. he worked with the army he before. knows where to get some serious like rocket stuff yeah so another cool fun stunt fact at the end of the film where toe cutter gets run over miller paid a truck driver 50 bucks to run over the bike mm. and the truck driver didn't want to damage his truck setup understandably so the crew made a makeshift shield, repainted it to look like the front of the truck, and then had that crash into it. Again, like, this is very ingenious, these solutions. That guy definitely talked about that for the rest of his life. Oh, like, that yeah. truck driver was, yeah, you know that truck in Mad Max? That's my truck. Here's another lifelong experience that David Egby, the cinematographer, I don't think he will ever forget. You know those cool cinematography POVs of the motorcycles? Yeah. There's a shot. You can find it online. It's David Egby holding the camera while he was a passenger on the motorcycles mm -hmm. going 110 miles per hour. Miles? Yeah. Oh my god that's fast. To make things worse he couldn't hold on to anything because he, he had, had to camera, hold up the right? camera. Those cameras were big. No helmets, no protective gear because if he had one on he couldn't fucking see into the lens. So his legs were fucking Clamp, straddling dude. and <laughs> clamping the bikes. That dude was clenching his butt. That's how dangerous this production gets. Where did Miller find these committed people? I don't know. Because Amateur so, filmmaker, small budget, let's risk our lives. The police are on his side, like a random truck driver's gonna help him. If we went out and we tried to get any of that, we get arrested. We get him. arrested. <laughs> and we should be. Half this film is made of luck. It is <laughs> the product of luck. But this leads us into our next segment. I'm not even gonna tell you what this is. You're gonna know real fast. So, the safety coordinator was a man by the name of Ian Goodard and he was an international motor racer beaten ah. and he claims that they were so diligent and not a single accident occurred now I won't be the one to tell you otherwise <laughs> instead I'll have the quote by the insane cinematographer yeah, who rode bike. on the bike on 110 <laughs> miles per hour who called the production often fraught with <laughs> incidents and accidents the injuries 
of this film, Baden. The injury started before shooting with Grant Page, who you remember who is the army commando yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, He had a serious motorcycle accident when driving to the set, broke his leg practicing one of the stunts on his way to set, delaying production. I would have bailed on this film if I was making it. We are going to get to that. Oh. Oh, okay. There's a huge... This twist. is what... I, okay, this is what I mean, you motherfucker. Every time I try to come up with a riff, it's <laughs> something that actually happened you on this goddamn... You can't joke around! I'm trying to... God damn it. I can't even be funny with this. Remember how I said the film was originally supposed to be shot in 10 weeks? Yeah. That was because four days into shooting, Grant Page and Rosie Bailey, who was originally cast as Jesse, mm. Max's wife, yeah. performed the same motorcycle stunt that Grant Page had his injury with that he was uh... practicing, and it caused Rosie to be injured, shattering both of her legs. Production was halted, Bailey was replaced, and it caused a two-week delay. Dude, what kind of contract did they sign? Can they not sue over this stuff? I don't think How there does was work? any contracts. Wow. It was spur of the moment, right? Yeah. Like all these films. Yeah. It's interesting because you before mentioned how- He said, you know, Miller has studied stunt stuff because he, he wants to avoid injuries. And it happens when you do repeated stunts. And this was a repeated instance. Yeah. Which is crazy. Multiple injuries too. Yeah. But this incident, after the 12th, week delay, it shook Miller's confidence so much that he became certain that he was not experienced enough to ensure anyone's safety on set. Right. So much so that he said after the two weeks delay, I'm not directing this anymore. Well, let's be honest, like he was a medical person. This must have been really hard for him. He was seeing the horror in front of him and he said, I was the one saving their lives before probably. Now I might be the one to actually kill someone. He said that? He didn't say that, but, but I that, imagine- That's the essence, right? That's the essence. Yeah. I, like you can like, kind of get that. Yeah, because imagine, right, like, isn't there an oath you do when you become a doctor where you, like, to never harm or something like yeah. that? Like, he probably took an oath like that, and then on his movie sets, people are getting badly hurt. hurt. Yeah. It must have shaken him, like, really badly. He thought he should step down as director and become a producer instead. Mm -hmm. And he thought this was so bad that he wasn't cut to be a director at all. Yeah, that turned out to be very untrue. He, he wanted to quit. Yeah. And this quote kind of illustrates some of his thinking. With my first film, First Mad Max, I really thought I didn't have the makings of a filmmaker. I found the process way too hard. The film was nothing like I wanted it to be. I had a film in my head. I thought we were all highly prepared and just had everything figured out. But after on films with more resources, I realized that was just how it happened. I'm someone on the other hand, I like things to be calm and go smoothly. But on the other hand, I realized that's never going to happen. Yeah. So he thought I was prepared. I was ready to do this. But you can't prepare for everything. You especially cannot prepare for everything when you're working on that small of a budget. Yeah. If you double his budget, triple his budget, I'm sure they could have been a lot safer. Exactly. But like you said, they were dodging police, shutting down roads. Nothing was professional. Almost. Yeah. So he had Kennedy call up Brian Teckard Smith, who they had known from an Australian film called The Dragon Files, mm -hmm. and asked him to take over. Brian actually gave him advice that probably changed Miller's entire career and yeah. saved it. Brian suggested that Miller stayed as director and instead hire a good first assistant director to support him. Okay. And this role would be taken up by Ian Goddard who said there was no accidents on the set. Yeah, <laughs> fucking liar. <laughs> um, but Miller got some support. He rejoined as director. So there were actually a few other injuries of note. Johnny the Boy severely cut his mouth after Toe Cutter shoved the shotgun into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Sheila Florence, who played May, broke her knee after tripping. Is that why she has the braces? The 
leg things? She returns to complete her scenes with her leg and her hip in plaster. So that's why you see those casters supported yeah. by those metal wires. I really, I thought that was I thought that dressing. was a film choice, right? I thought that was a choice. It's one of the few things that I thought was actually a choice in this film. But it turns out everything is just luck and stupidity. <laughs> this is so stupid. And so that concludes the filming. So here's into some fun other stuff. Yeah, let's Hugh hear about it. K is Byrne, who plays Toe Cutter, actually went to play Immortan Joe in Mad Max Fury Road. I think that's awesome that he got brought back, for real. I think that's incredible. I would be overjoyed. Even if I had a minor role, I'd be like, come on, that's that's so fun, man. Yeah, and he comes back for Morton Joe. It's this crazy role. That's really cool. I love that. Uh, Tim Burns, Johnny the Boy, was so into character that he annoyed everyone on set and was abandoned one day during lunch while handcuffed to the rack. <laughs> They just left him there for lunch just to fuck with him. Again, some lawsuits would definitely happen <laughs> No, if yeah. this was made today. Yeah. John Dowding, the art director and his crew, stole all of the props adorning this storefront early in the morning of shooting and returned them before anyone noticed. Oh. You've got, like, Grand Theft Auto, gang affiliation for this film, illegal road closures. What else can you have? So here's where we get to post-production and the the end of the film. Edited originally by Tony Patterson in four months, but he had to leave as he was contracted to make another movie. Okay. So Miller and Kennedy had run out of money at this point. So they did it themselves? Yeah. They edited the film in a friend's apartment. Kennedy <laughs> cut the fucking sound in the lounge room and Miller cut the picture in the kitchen over the course of three months making the final cut. It's amazing that it came together so well. And it's literally because their friend's dad had like this editing machine, this right. home editing machine, and they were like, okay, well, I guess we'll do it then. Yeah, because you needed a physical device for it. So with the final cut done, with everything you know yeah. about this film, the stunts, the police escapes, with inflation, how much money do you think this made? In today's dollars. Yeah. Man, okay, if its budget is like 1.5 mil in today's dollars, and it may, it was one of the most profitable movies, it's gotta have made at least like 150. I'm actually gonna double that. I, I'm gonna say 300. 405 million dollars. 405 mil on that small of a budget. Can you fucking imagine? I don't know what the like royalty split or like the revenue split would have been. Miller must have been set for life. Yeah, if I made that film. You'd never see me again. (laughs) And I made this much money, I'd be like, what the fuck happened? On the profit alone of that, if it got split, you know, partially to producers and editors and George Miller himself and Byron Kennedy must have each pocketed like 10 mil. Yeah, at the very least. Yeah. But it opened the global market for Australian film productions. Wow. Interestingly enough, despite its worldwide success, it wasn't successful in the US. Really? It only made $8 million, which is still good for the film. Even if it just made that, that would still be profitable. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? But the reason for this will shock you. Before the film was released, the American distributor overdubbed the actors with American voices. Oh, I heard about this in my research as well. He believed the American audience couldn't understand Australian accents as they had no experience with real-life Australians. Which is so stupid. It's so stupid. And all Australian slang was replaced by American slang. So the movie would just be awful, then. (laughs) Yeah, and they believed this would avoid commercial failure, but commercially failed the movie. Yeah, it caused it. In the US. And audiences thought the voices were cartoony, yeah. They thought it was cheap. They thought it was just awful performances. Yeah. But it actually didn't only face controversy in the Americas. The movie was outright banned in New Zealand. No, not New Zealand. 
Zealand. Not the Kiwis. No, why did they ban it? It was banned because of the scene where Goose is burned alive in the vehicle. Not because of the ratings, but it mirrored an incident with a real gang when Goose was burned alive in his car not long before the film came out. Whoa. So they banned it for like insensitive content and stuff. Yeah. So with all considered, this film made bank. Made bank. It made like times a hundred its budget pretty much. More. Yeah. Holy shit. That's like times 300. It's insane. It kickstarted a fantastic franchise and it started the career of Mel Gibson, a really prolific actor. Controversy at all. Best director. Before this film, he was a film student going into bar fights over pumps. He's huge now. And most of all, paved the road for George Miller. After, you know, he thought he couldn't do it, he pushed through and he's like a multi-million dollar worth director. I'd say the ratio of his films in terms of profitable versus non-profitable. Yeah. It's really high. He's only had a couple of misses and the misses have been smaller and the hits have been huge, huge, huge hits. I gained a lot of respect from him just from doing the behind the scenes of this film. For sure. He didn't end up being like a, I have to do real cinema. He went and he did critically acclaimed kids films. He is truly a self-made director. Self-made director, a craftsman, and a legend. A bloody legend. (laughs) To end off, I have one final quote from dedicated Mad Max fan about the entire trilogy. Let's do it. The Mad Max films are brilliant documentaries on how driving on the wrong side of the road inevitably leads to societal collapse. (laughs) Every day I am thankful my father made it out of the hellscape called Australia (laughs) alive. And if that doesn't sum up the wild process of this film, I don't know what does. With that being said, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the fourth episode of the First Film Podcast. Absolute delight recording another. We're excited to do the next episode, which is going to be Bong Joon-ho's Barking Dogs Never Bite. I highly recommend if people want to watch the trailer for that before they see the episode so they can get an idea. We haven't seen anything else and we were like, oh, Bong Joon-ho did Parasite. What is his first film? And we saw this trailer and we were like, this has to be we the first We have to do six. this episode. So. Yeah. But for now, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to recommend the podcast to your friends. It's the best way we get new listeners. Absolutely. Also remember to like, follow, subscribe on all our social media platforms. You're never going to want to miss an episode you're gonna never want to miss a bloody including episode. our youtube page you can find the video version of the first film podcast that's and correct some fun little reels some little shorts some stuff like that and um yeah feel free to shoot us an email and we'll see you next time goodbye